The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, July the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is six days now since a horrifying knife attack on primary school children and a young woman attempting to protect them was followed within hours by the worst rioting seen in Dublin City for a very long time. In the days that have followed, there's been no shortage of analysis and reportage on what exactly happened, how the events unfolded, and what they might mean. All of these questions are interlinked, of course, but we wanted to focus primarily today on the politics of anti-immigration in Ireland, how that's been changing in recent years and what might happen in the future. To do that, I am joined by three guests. Roland McRae is Professor of Constitutional Law at University College London. Kevin Cunningham lectures in politics at Technological University Dublin with years of experience in political polling in Ireland and in the UK. And Una Mullally is a writer and Irish Times columnist. Una, I'm going to go to you first, if, if, if you don't mind, after the kind of the horror of the the original knife attack and the violence and everything that followed. The worst part to me of what I've seen in, in, in the days since is, is how so many people, particularly people from immigrant backgrounds, feel more unsafe on the, on the streets of our city. Do you think people are right when they say that Ireland changed last Thursday? I'm not sure if it changed last Thursday. I think the reaction and the policing aspect of public order stuff will change. I think the approach to the disparate but obviously very toxic far-right organising and agitation will change. Um, And I think that if anything good can come out of this, we could actually have a conversation, not necessarily about immigration, but about the level of racism and bigotry in Ireland and how on the surface or over the surface that often is and uh, what's going on where the various fault lines in society are being used as opening points to seed, manipulate, whip this up, egg this on. I think that's really vital. Uh, We need to do that. Um, I absolutely understand why people of colour, immigrants, people with like even different accents and stuff feel nervous and fearful. And I actually think that is a very legitimate uh, response because we hear all the time about various, you know, verbal abuse, um, really terrible attitudes, uh, unprovoked attacks that have been happening for a long time now, really. And any time there has been uh, any little peak in this kind of trajectory we've seen around uh, the far right in terms of protests or in terms of reaction to specific crimes in terms of disinformation being circulated, there is a sense of menace on the street, in particular aimed at people of colour. So that's something that really, really needs to be addressed. We we do have our heads buried in the sand around this and... uh, People need to to self-examine a bit more, I think, as well. There are two 
apparently separate things, but they seem to be related in some of the criticism of what uh, of what you're just describing there. One is uh, a deliberate police tactic, which I think we can definitely say is the case of a sort of softy, softy approach. It's been described as to to these demonstrations, not not going to full on confrontation. That and as you say, that may may change now. And then there's also been criticism of from some quarters that there's been a, an underplaying of the rise of of this phenomenon in Ireland. That it's been underestimated or there's been perhaps a somewhat complacent assumption that it's kind of that it's it's tiny and negligible. Yeah, I think both of those things are correct. Um I've attended numerous far right protests and gatherings. The police uh approach un- unless there was kind of direct scuffles and violence happening was very standoffish. I understand that approach. It it didn't actually work because what it served to kind of I suppose enable was this sense of um, emboldenment that you could actually, you know, march up and down O'Connell Street or around Christchurch or wherever, just shouting loads of racist stuff, which was what was happening. And, you know, kids shouting, get out of our country and this kind of thing. Um, And obviously you have to be extraordinarily cautious and mindful of civil liberties and freedom of expression and all that kind of stuff. I think we can pretty safely say, considering last Thursday, that the strategy from the top didn't work. We had Drew Harris in May say that the far right wasn't growing um, and that he wasn't going to follow their playbook as he saw, whatever that is in, in his interpretation. The far right was growing and it was also growing in passion of sentiment. And there was a very clear trajectory going back to 2018 on this. There have been a number of building events that seem sporadic but are actually, you know, operating within a pattern. We can go back to agitation outside direct provision centres, in Ruski and so on, disinfo leaflet drops. We can look at the pandemic and the violence against police during the pandemic um, on Grafton Street in particular with these conspiracy theory related protests that overlap with the far right. Indeed, many of the kind of uh, online influencers of the far right are heavily involved in those. We then look at the localised protests, which are happening around the country, um, many of them in Dublin, um, and the like, really threatening atmosphere around them, crowds turning up to direct provision centres and emergency accommodation centres, shouting, get them out, burn them out. We can go back to arson attacks in multiple different places, especially the burning of the... Uh, towns on Sandwich Street, um, the attacks on uh, homeless immigrants in uh, Ashtown, um, sporadic racist attacks in Dublin city centre, uh, attacks on LGBTQ plus people, street crime, reporting more abuse, reporting more harassment, um, the harassment of librarians that comes from another element of this like weird ecosystem of conspiracy and, and far right stuff around transphobia. Um, and the much larger kind of protests that were that were coming together, and the resistance to those by um, you know people who were who were gathering in terms of an anti-fascist uh, way that has been mostly peaceful. The galas being brought to the door, the Healy Ray being jostled. You know, I saw Mary Lou being shouted at uh, the the other night in her own constituency, and there was public order unit there as well. Um, the really like visceral, awful hatred that a lot of politicians have had to deal with, death threats, um, 
And then the online layer where the tech companies, you know, all of whom are headquartered here, by the way, have done very, very little to actually stop the disinfo aspect of this. So this is this is not happening in a vacuum. Like th- this is all happening together. It's really important not to amplify these talking points or indeed, you know, give people a platform who who really seek negative attention, you know, who really love being an en- that the media is their enemy, that they're being targeted, that they're being called out and all that kind of stuff. But everyone who was combating this in communities, apart from local politicians, were ordinary people living in different neighbourhoods, organising. You know, the, the, where was the police strategy? And and I was listening to Simon Coveney on uh, Primetime talking about, oh, these people are using sophisticated communications tools. Telegram, bro, or like Twitter. Yeah. So it's troubling to me that given all of these things that we've seen, that there doesn't seem to be a guard strategy in terms of a, a kind of a rapid response to kind of flash far-right organising because one of the ingredients that we've seen time and time again is incidents of crime. And if a crime occurs, a violent crime, there is a... Uh, and, and if it happens to be a perpetrator, an alleged perpetrator happens not to be Irish, there's mobilisation online straight away. There's reaction online straight away. There's disinformation spread straight away. So it was quite obvious uh, on Thursday that that this would have needed a, a, an immediate response that doesn't seem to have exist, so that's a policing failure. Yeah, it's a policing failure, but it's also a political failure because those two things are interlinked. I mean, Ronan, you, um, you wrote a piece some months ago in the Irish Times um, about, in which I think um, you, you described Ireland as an outlier. Ireland used to be an outlier because it was it was uh, more conservative um, than most of the rest of Western Europe, and it's now an outlier. You described it as Fukuyama Island because it's the last bastion of the um, the post Berlin Wall fall dispensation, uh, and people have remarked quite a lot over the last few years about the fact that uh, that Ireland hasn't seen the level of um, far-right political activity, anti-immigrant sentiment, however, however you want to put it, as other countries have. But I think you predicted that it was coming and your point may have been proved by recent events. I think Ireland has been an exception. But I'm, always, I'm always a bit suspicious of Irish exceptionalism, that we used to be uniquely laggard and embarrassingly in the early 90s being dragged in front of the European courts about laws on abortion information and homosexuality, all that stuff. And then we kind of came into the European mainstream. But then we did have so seen ourselves in a way as a kind of mirror image of that, reverse of that, where we, we, we are uniquely able to uh, deal, with, deal with issues in, a, in an enlightened way. And I think we're not that different. And I think if you look around Europe, the reality is that in the long term, immigration does become a part of political life. Now, that hasn't happened in Ireland yet. It has been out of party politics for very good reasons, as Una was saying. We don't, you know, politicians, to their credit, have worried about people feeling scapegoated, worried about encouraging uh, discrimination and, and kind of hostility. But it is also the biggest social change since independence to move from very mo- tiny amounts of uh, immigration to 17% of the population and rising being foreign-born. And with any huge social change, it's going to suit some people, it's not going to suit other people. And it'll have, even changes that are net positives will have negative elements. And we haven't seen that discussed 
in the in, as, as a matter of party politics in Ireland. The parties have had a kind of cartel arrangement where they haven't brought it in. Now, thing is, we, that happened in a lot of other countries too, in the Netherlands, in uh, Sweden, uh, in Denmark, less, but in, in, in other countries, the, the parties tried to have um, a system where they all agreed to stay away from this issue, not to politicise it. But because it is such a big change, it is go- becomes a salient issue and the cartel eventually breaks. The list Pimfortein in t- 2002 in the Netherlands, uh, later then uh, Gert Wilders' Freedom Party, and then in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats. The electoral politics abhors a vacuum. And because many voters were focused on this issue, the, the cartel system didn't work. The other thing, so I think in the long run, this will, it, there's no way in which the biggest social change in independ- since independence, which will, with all, as with all changes, will please some people and not please others, is going to stay out of party politics. And then the second reason I think we have to, it probably will have to come into the political arena is because the parties have agreed not to discuss it, often for noble good reasons, the political system also has not discussed how we manage our future as a society of immigration. And we see in Europe there's really big differences between, you know, in Britain initially anyway, they had a, an influential report in 2000 that, that, that advocated the idea of a community of communities approach. In France, they have a very assimilationist approach. Nicolas Sarkozy, effect, you know, um, famously said, if you um, migrate to France, uh, you accept that your ancestors are the Gauls. In uh, Germany, it's a bit different. There's a very Bassam Tibi, a German-Syrian, says, well, all groups can contribute, but with, with a light culture, with a kind of leading framework of post-Christian, Christian-German culture. So there's all these different approaches, each of which has pluses and minuses. But we haven't really decided in Ireland which we have. I mean, government, the government has an integration strategy, but it's pretty vague. It says, oh, integration is a two-way process. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we think that all migrants should, uh, or, uh, should think that their ancestors were the Celts? Or do we think that should we should have a community of communities? Um, you know, do we, I mean, uh, they, they, they talk about common values must be protected, uh, the, the integration strategy says. But what does that mean? Does that mean democracy? Does it mean um, accepting same-sex marriage? Or how far do we go, right? We don't, we, none of these things have been discussed and people will have different views about them. But we're going to, it's, it's going to be a political issue. As I said, when you have a change of the magnitude of this, it is going to annoy some people, it's going to thrill some other people, but it can't really, uh, the experience of other European countries suggests, be kept out of the political, um, party political debate in, uh, in, in the long term. Can I just say something to that? So I really disagree with this kind of analysis, to be quite honest. Like, I think that what we're seeing in Ireland is... Um, fault lines in society, primarily around the housing crisis. This is where the rhetoric around, quote unquote, the far right rhetoric around Ireland is full is coming uh, from. And I think that when you say we need to have a conversation about immigration, I really, really worry about that kind of framework because what is that conversation and what is that conversation for? Because if you start talking about how many, who, where from, that's a xenophobic framework. And and the, the people who want to have such conversations, I don't think we should be taking our cue as a democratic 
diverse society from. So I, I really, really disagree with that. I think we're long past talking about Francis Fukuyama, to be quite honest as well, you know. Ah, no, he had a new book out. It was quite interesting a couple, well, of, a couple of years ago. I but, mean, but I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. And I'm interested to hear the, the divergence of views here because it seems to me, Kevin, that, you know, that there, there are two frames on, on this, which I've seen in, in, recent, in recent days. And one um, says, one points the finger very, very strongly at... Uh, enablers, I suppose you could say, and says that certain people have been paddling in the shallow pool of some of these ideas in, in, the, in the mainstream political sphere in, in recent months. And, you know, that ties in in an international context. I was reading a piece by political scientist Cass Mudde last week in the wake of Kurt Wilders' success in the Dutch elections, and he was pointing his fingers at mainstream Christian Democrat parties and centre-right parties across Europe for pandering. Uh, to some of these kind of ideas. So that's one frame. The other frame says, um, which I think is, uh, Ronan is what more what you were saying, which is that if you if you keep all of these subjects and all of these, you know, actual real issues of social change um, off the table, immediately you'll build a pressure cooker and sooner or later that'll blow. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think, I think okay, so to take, to take the two sort of frames uh, in turn, in the first case, the sort of adoption strategy, let's say the idea that you, the gov- people start talking about immigration in terms of a policy and start developing more restrictive immigration policies. I, I don't think that that over time necessarily reduces support for radical right parties. I think by the time in which... Uh, the issue is uh, hitting, hit, hitting, hitting the salience of the, the level of salience of immigration that it is today, you know, those parties will continue to develop more generally. On the other hand, I think avoiding the issue as well doesn't really work either because it, that then amplifies the sort of the populist element of the vote in terms of trying to, if you try to suppress the conversation, let's say, and it's, it's quite apparent that the conversation is being suppressed, then invariably people start to look at these parties and say, well, these are the agents of change in society. And it starts to look like, okay, there are elites versus real people's opinions and it really starts to push at the populist element. So I don't think either strategy necessarily uh, works, so to speak. I mean, um, the rise of these sorts of parties and this issue has happened in many, many different countries, despite what lots of different countries have done. And they have taken quite a range of different uh, options in trying to address this. I fundamentally think that there is a underlying trend here in which it's semi-unavoidable, in which collectivist parties, uh, due to the nature of atomization of society, find it more difficult to hold support in more working class areas. And as a result, invariably, the relative rise of the right has, has improved in these areas. And, and it's a different kind of right wing than we're used to because it's a right wing that doesn't necessarily like the status quo. So it's a more radical right, I guess, to put it in, in, in those terms. And I think that's that's a lot of what's happening. It, it is, and I would agree with Una certainly in terms of, I think the main repercussions here is for minorities in particular, that it's a particularly, um, it's a particularly negative form of politics to emerge. And, and, and clearly in places like the UK, uh, you know, it, it's clearly been significantly negative for minorities in the UK where this issue actually raises its salience. I think that's that's really important. At the same time, you know, in places like the United States, let's say, for example, while the issue hasn't been necessarily suppressed or anything, you can see how when you allow the populist element to kind of fervor, when you try to suppress the issue, perhaps in other countries, if you allow populism to fervor, then you do end up with a challenge to democracy itself. And these parties continue to rise and continue to become more popular. I think one of the 
other interesting points to make is around political entrepreneurs. And it's, it's often said that you, you need a political entrepreneur to, to raise the salience of these issues. But I think if you, if you think about a lot of political systems across Europe in terms of cartel politics systems, where historically speaking, uh, they would have been funded by their, their members and now increasingly they're funded by the state itself. You end up having these political entrepreneurs who are a little bit more... I guess, savvy into uh, entering a sort of a protectionist system and they end up getting quite a lot of votes very quickly because they are clearly quite different to the system which is kind of protecting itself and protecting the party system in the way in which parties have become inextricably linked to the state uh, in some respect in some of these countries. So you end up with this sudden rise of these parties which wouldn't otherwise happen if it was just a political party trying to gain salience uh, trying to gain support on a salient issue such as say the green party or or whatever it might be i think it's very important to emphasize that this really really is just about immigration as an issue and there are there are political scientists like uh, rory costello who've looked at uh, party politics in Ireland and looked at the positions versus vis-a-vis the public. And you can see there's sort of a gap, let's say, in the market, so to speak, for that kind of more conservative um, vote on on these sorts of issues. Yeah, maybe maybe you could talk to us in a little bit more detail, just explain that gap. I mean, what is what is public sentiment for, based on, on the polling that you've been doing over, over recent years? Okay, yeah, I mean... So if you go back two years ago, th- this issue wasn't a particularly salient issue. It was uh, 2 or 3% would have identified as an important issue. Nowadays, uh, it, it's up to, upwards towards 19, 20% of the public identifying this is particularly, uh, this is particularly important. In relation to the, the, the recent sort of refugee crises, there, there are po- opinion polling questions that, w- that would uh, show how people's attitudes towards the numbers of immigrants in the country. Uh, obviously, a, a majority believe that we took in too many. Now, it's, that's not the sort of thing that you can kind of uh, reverse overnight, which is one of the problems with trying to address this issue or have a conversation with it. You can't really reverse immigration without committing a whole load of um, uh, human rights violations uh, by deporting vast numbers of people. So it's not really an issue that can easily be depoliticized by having a conversation. That's the other reason why this is quite tricky because when you look at other issues, there's a there's an idea called this uh, called the thermostatic model of public opinion. And that is the idea that if the public want climate action, let's say, and the government goes really, uh, becomes a really climate action progressive government, uh, then the public start to shift towards the other direction. So the, so the public kind of responds to government policy uh, on the basis of how the people respond to government policy, on the basis of how the government have uh, reacted to that policy area. And I think in the issue of immigration, it's actually very difficult to do that because what a lot of people are looking for is to deport vast numbers of people, which just cannot Is happen. that really what a lot of people are looking for? Like when, because we have seen these opinions, we have seen these polls saying, you know, you know, a majority, substantial majority of people saying that they think immigration is a, is a, is a problem. Uh, what that means might, you know, doesn't necessarily mean deportation, does it? It might just mean something else. Well, I just think when, when this issue develops, when it gets to the point in which people start to become this, have this level of concern that they have about it, there's no way of of responding to it in the same way that governments can respond to other issues and kind of move something in the other direction. Once people have decided that their country doesn't look the way they like it, the only way to kind of address this issue is through effective integration policy, I think. Um, but you're you're asking as well about the relative salience of the issue, and you know one of the work, one of the pieces of work uh, I've been doing is just looking at what is the kind of typical far right style voter, I guess, in Ireland. 
is the kind of person who would believe immigration is an important issue, uh, have populism, uh, a popular sentiment in relation to two particular survey questions, and be anti-immigrant in terms of the extent to which they believe, uh, you know, they're undermining Irish culture or whatever. Uh, and if you fit, if you tick all three boxes, you can consider that person to be the type of person that would otherwise vote for a far right party, let's say. And that amounts to about nine to ten percent of the public uh, in in Ireland right now. Um, and and that sort of demographic uh, in Ireland itself uh, is, you know, as as you might expect, uh, is quite interesting in some respect because it's younger, um, and it's, it's significantly younger than than you would otherwise expect, in, in, as in other countries like the UK. That's actually quite similar to Bulgaria and Romania, where the far right is quite young and quite male. But but that's basically where it is right now. That, in that, that's interesting, is it? Because I mean, as far as I know, in in other European countries and also in the United States, the kind of the populist right is disproportionately older. You know? Um, yeah. Well, I think we're talking about like multiple different things at the same time. Just something that okay. Kevin said there around like working class communities, something to do with voting right or something like that. But like the reality is, in in let's say if we take Dublin for example, you know particular constituencies that would have large working class communities or whatever, however you want to characterise that, these are left-wing uh, voters, <laughs> okay? Right, so, you know, broadly, um, um, that's what's been going on in Dublin city centre in particular. I think it's important to point out as well that we have to differentiate between far-right agitators and online influencers and anger merchants who are whipping this st- stuff up People who are being egged on or whipped up within this context, uh, many of whom have plenty of reasons to be angry. Obviously, their anger is a great tool to misplace and to use strategically in order to further your nihilistic aims. And then we have the general context in Ireland where there is an awful lot of unaddressed bigotry and xenophobia that people do not want to talk about and they don't want to get in the way of their own sense of goodness. So with regards to kind of, well, we need to talk this, we need to talk about immigration or it doesn't enter the mainstream political, you know, realm or whatever, like we have to ask or, you know, continue that thought and ask why do people have these uh, points of view around we've taken in, quote unquote, too many refugees or whatever. That's about the housing crisis. That's about the housing crisis because there is people are seeing in rural communities and urban communities emergency accommodation centres which are necessary. Ireland has obligations under international law with regards to refugees and asylum seekers and people are also en masse almost, apart from wealthy people, struggling with housing. So when we talk about why would there be discontent uh, around quote-unquote immigration, whatever that looks like, or asylum seekers, it's to do with the strain that is on society around housing and xenophobia and racism. But couldn't you say exactly the same thing of the Brexit voters in 2016 who said that there was strain on the NHS in their local town in Northern England or that Eastern European workers were working at lower rates than, than they were, their, their job rates were being undercut. Isn't, isn't, isn't that a version of the same thing, that, that, uh, that social problems which are pre-existing, which are there, and economic problems and disadvantage um, are either, and it depends which way you want to look at it, are either exacerbated by 
additional demands on services or that the people who are making those demands on services because they're coming into the country are an easy scapegoat, one or the other? I think there's a lot of scapegoating happening, but the scapegoating is orchestrated. So that's why we have to talk, when we're talking about the far right in Ireland, the, the scapegoating and the disinformation is orchestrated. These are not legitimate concerns. This is the same type of playbook that we see in kind of mostly like online that then bleeds out offline of the far right and of fascistic conspiratorial influencers everywhere. You know, that that that, it, that is what has been happening. That's why the majority of the um, content of what is being spewed by these guys and some women is disinformation. So, Roland, I suppose the question that this begs for me is, what what does a conversation, a civilised, rational, respectful conversation about uh, about two related but different subjects, about um, an integrated multicultural society and about, uh, and about appropriate levels of immigration and how to do those things in a, in a rational and legal and humane way. How does that conversation take place? Because very often I hear people saying we need to have a conversation, but they don't say what the conversation is. Right, yeah. So we'll, I'll do a narrow thing and a broader thing first. So the narrow thing, I think Kevin is right, that the legal framework does produce, um, in a way, narrow policy options and probably produces a sense that governments are impotent um, across Europe. And I used to be, in a previous life, uh, the legal officer for a refugee charity. And it is that even when the procedures get really, really harsh, it's actually quite hard to deport people because you need the cooperation of third countries and other things. It's very difficult. Um, so that's a narrow point. But more broadly, well, I, I think one of the lessons we've had from the last few decades is the dangers of hubris, that we have a hubristic view that we have become almost like Star Trek. We've, we've got, when they look back and they say, we used to be these terrible tribal creatures and now we're civilized and we don't do war anymore and we don't do this. Well, that, that's the 1990s view that has become, I think, progressively discredited, that we have to realize that, as Barack Obama said, the attempt to build multicultural, multiracial democracies is actually historically unique and rare. It actually, it hasn't been pulled off before. So we have to be aware of the difficulty of what we're doing. Because, sorry, can I just put, I, that's, an ex, that's, that's just not, uh, I think, an acceptable ar- argument to, to, well, if you let to me be bringing in. But, first, uh, but Ireland is a diverse and multicultural an integrated society that has certain people operating within it now, leveraging their own uh, narcissism and crazed ideology. I think we'd better to let Roland finish his point. So what I'm saying is, in all countries, it's, it's going to be difficult. The conversations have to be done very, have to be done very carefully because, and they won't, there'll be plenty of people who jump in and create more heat than light and have terrible agendas. But the conversation will be difficult because it is a historically, it is a new project trying to create multiracial, uh, multicultural democracies that, that endure long term. Now, we, we, we might wish that we were not the tribal creatures, the tr- creatures with tribal instincts that we are, but we have to manage those instincts, live together and find a way to do this thing that, that humanity hasn't really done successfully before. So that means, I think, giving up, uh, giving up on the idea that we can, it'll be fine. The ca- what frustrates me about Kasmuda is he keeps looking for reasons why 
the people he disagrees with can just be told, no, you're wrong. You should like it. Maybe some, the issue is, this is a big change. I think it's probably a change that is a net positive, but it's going to, some people won't like it and it will have some drawbacks. So we have to address it. And just saying people shouldn't, people shouldn't dislike it or they shouldn't, it isn't going to work. We need to, if what happens, as we saw in, in, in Sweden, Netherlands, Denmark, is when the, when, when the issue is ignored, and particularly when the issue of, you know, this is a fact, Ireland is already a multiracial society, as are nearly all the countries in Western Europe. So it's, it's a question about how we make it work. But how we, how we make it work needs probably, I think, quite explicit conversations about whether we want an assimilationist model uh, or we want a more multicultural model or not. Both of those models have pluses and minuses. A community of communities allows a lot more scope for people, for different groups to keep their own identity, but it probably should co- at, at some cost to cohesion. Assimilationist model is, is, and the friend, in, in, is a bit more restrictive, has a big cost in terms of individual expression and group identity, but then has, puts more stress on a, on a cohesive identity. So all these things are difficult conversations, but we're going to have to do it because what we're, what we're trying to do is historically rare and difficult to pull off. I'm going to let Una back in in a sec, but I'm also going to let Kevin in in a sec. But before I do any of that, I'm going to take this very quick break and be back after this. Una, you wanted to respond quickly to what Ronan said before I go to Kevin there. And actually, can I just piggyback on what he said there and say, isn't he right, though, that this is a... uh, in many ways, a social experiment which very few societies have have undertaken before the twentieth, the late twentieth and twenty first century. And having said that, and kind of just to bring it back to the personal slightly, I was reading Brianna Parkins, who wrote, I think, was an important column about the, the innate decency of most people, even on the night in Dublin last uh, uh, last Thursday. And in fact, that that's where that's something we can't lose sight of at this point. We can talk about the political ramifications, but the fact is that most Irish people wants to live happily and healthily alongside their neighbours of all sorts. Yeah, I think if we start talking about, you know, immigration as social experiments and... Well, social change. Well, how, how, and social, and how do we make this work? It, it's kind of really denying the reality of what's happening on the ground in Ireland. Um, as I've said, this has been a series of agitation that is strategic and being whipped up by certain far-right entities. Um, There are also a separate issue, but there are also a lot of social stresses in Ireland, particularly around housing. The far-right is leveraging uh, manufactured rage around senses of safety and crime and using rhetoric around protecting women and children and so on, and demonising immigrants as somehow uniquely violent, which is obviously nonsense. But and, in relation and, to Kevin's point, yeah, in, rela- just, in relation but, to that, but, but is, this isn't is the case that the political entrepreneurs that Kevin talks about would not be successful in their entrepreneurship, and we are going to come to the question of the electoral failure of the far right in a moment, but would not be successful unless there was some element of sentiment that within the broad body politic that was Yeah, it's called like that. xenophobia and it's called being bombarded with disinformation. So is that the 10% of people that Kevin was talking about? Earlier? I don't I don't know what that is. All I know is that there's a lot of unaddressed racism and xenophobia in Ireland and there's a refusal to actually acknowledge that. Like there is so much Irish exceptionalism that we are uniquely sound, that we're somehow magic, that we'll never gravitate towards this. 
Like, we need to address that. Isn't that why we have to talk how to make it work? No, no, but but if if in terms of making it work, that's actually about white Irish people looking at their own biases, putting the onus on people who are potentially being discriminated against or attacked or spoken about as a cohort. And by the way, we're four white Irish people sitting around talking about this, which, which is a, a major issue in this conversation, actually. Um, but it's like I, white Irish people need to address their own biases. We need to understand uh, the fault lines in society that are not necessarily people automatically reacting to the housing crisis or whatever with racism, but that that is being used and leveraged. That's what's been happening on, on the ground. I've been there. Like, I've seen it very clearly. And you can also see it online. So... That, that's a failure around uh, that is being leveraged. It's not necessa- necessary that people are being like, oh, I can't get a gaff. Now I'm going to demonize an immigrant. That's, that's not the trajectory. It's about what's being leveraged. And the reality is there was an incredible amount of immigration uh, to Ireland in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we didn't necessarily have this, although there was, of course, uh, discrimination, racism, xenophobia at that time as well. We didn't necessarily have this more visceral, violent, nihilistic uh, aspect, fringe, but, you know, not to be minimised, of our society, in part because, uh, first of all, the social media radicalisation pipelines didn't exist and disinformation wasn't a major issue, apart from broader media narratives uh, that can frame things in a specific way that are very cliché. But also because there was, of course, uh, a lack of um, ability for certain factions to leverage the fault lines that now exist. Right? Ireland is full of housing crisis. People are sick of their government. You know, the, the fascistic rhetoric of these kind of cohorts is always very ambiguous. Enough is enough. Your government hates you. Uh, protect our children. You know, this is kind of stuff that that basically you can package any kind of feeling of resentment or anger within. And yeah, that, and, that, and also, know, and I do want to bring this Kevin, is so cliche. Yeah, and, I, and I do, yeah, absolutely. And I do want to bring Kevin in because one of the things about everything you've described is there's nothing peculiarly Irish about this. There is no Irish exceptionalism involved in any of this. Those kinds of sentiments about uh, about the state, about the establishment, about the rise of populism, they exist in Ireland. They exist everywhere else, don't they, Kevin? Yeah, they do. Uh, It's worth saying, though, at the same time, Ireland is, and perhaps because of the lack of political entrepreneurs forcing this issue, Ireland, when you look at the European Social Survey, when it comes to the key question, which is about should the government be generous in relation to refugees, Ireland is actually more progressive than other European countries on this issue. And that's probably because it hasn't... It hasn't yet reached the level of salience that it has in other than it had in other countries, where forty or fifty percent of people think that's the most important issue, and you have these kind of polarizing figures who are constantly drawing on this issue, constantly, you know, using the issue of crime in relation to immigration to try to accentuate this and try to create fears amongst the population. To be broadly honest, um, but no, uh, Ireland isn't particularly different, and uh, one of the one of the reasons for that is, as I say, there isn't this political party, there isn't this political system. The media is also an important uh, component of this, I think, to some extent, and the way in which Irish media might be slightly different to media in other countries, but obviously social media is quite important. So coming back to that uh, sort of piece of work that I've been working on, you know, one of the reasons why I think Ireland is slightly unique is because we do have these 
independent candidates. Um, I think independent candidates are unique, uh, unique to Ireland, uh, the, the relative support that independents get. And I think if you're to force those independents into a party, you'd end up with the radical right party, you'd end up with those political entrepreneurs, and you'd probably end up with a more salient immigration issue and more of this sort of conflict that we're talking about already. Um, but it's not just such as that. I think one of the reasons why it's slightly uh, increased recently is also because of the media. One of the other variables which we look at in terms of that particular demographic, that 9 or 10%, that rises to like 50% amongst those that consume gripped. Amongst those that uh, consume social media, it's, a, it's, it's significantly higher as well. Even Snapchat and TikTok tend to be one of the ones which are relatively higher amongst uh, people who tend to hold these sorts of views as well. So, And then at the other end of the scale, there is, you know, RT, the Irish Times, Irish Independent, for which relatively few people actually fall into this particular category. So I think the media has definitely got some sort of influence on this, on the relative salience of this issue. And perhaps it's that in some respect that's actually driving this, just to draw on uh, what Una was saying. I think the point made about social media or, or media in, in itself and, and the antagonizing behavior of, of certain characters is quite central to this. I'm not sure if I agree to the same extent to what was mentioned around like economic grievances, just in the context of what was also alluded to is that we've had uh, periods which we've had relatively higher levels of immigration and significantly higher economic grievances at the same time. And I think at this point, you know, we have youth unemployment is amongst the lowest uh, that, it, that it's ever really been. Well, as low as it's been uh, as it was during the Celtic Tiger. So. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that housing is obviously a, a conditional uh, issue in, in respect to that. But I think I think broadly speaking, it is these political actors and it is this kind of general movement where there's more space for the right in modern politics than there might have been in previous generations. Why is that, Kevin? Well, this comes back to, I, this comes back to my point about atomization, the inability of the left to kind of capture broad groups of society in the way in which they, they would otherwise be able to. I think that's that's quite significant. I think some of this is also, you know, when we look at the riots, let's say, um, we're kind of looking at the couple of hundred people who attended those riots, the young kids or whatever. And, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, that's a relatively small percentage of the Dublin population. But the equivalent sort of protests around refugee centres also are part of this sort of movement and uh, on a per capita basis they're actually slightly bigger in some respect you know that's kind of the more rural area and in fact this is a slightly more rural than it is urban issue but only very vaguely so um i think also the potential for this to to rise is probably to the prospect of of other parties you know aim to and and others and independence as i said before tend to be tend to be more likely to hold these sorts of views and tend to be much more likely to be the sorts of people that will adopt these sorts of positions, basically. And it, it's it's through that sort of lens that I, I tend to look at it. And I, I'll admit, it's a sense of inevitability that, that, that I tend to view this uh, this sort of development uh, as, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that, 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 that's a bit grim, that, um, that note. I mean, it, it, it strikes me, Ronan, that um, I'm not sure how much the average Irish voter pays to the success of Geert Fielders or what Marine Le Pen said last week. But we do exist in a social media and media anglosphere bubble, a kind of well, pretty depressing moment watching uh, 
Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon discussing the great replacement theory in Ireland uh, uh, yesterday on Elon Musk's increasingly unpleasant uh, social, social media platform. And these things do seep from from one society into another. I mean, do you agree with Kevin that, that there's a sort of an inevitable trajectory here? So I think it's very interesting what you said about how the independence things are a lightning rod. I think mean, that's, I hadn't thought it was a very good point. Um, yeah, and I think so, and definitely like housing crisis is uh, or housing shortages make a big di- make things worse or you know, can make things worse or better and in, in the Irish case worse but yeah if you look around we do we live in the Anglosphere but then it's the the, the 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 consistency of the patterns around Western Europe is really striking there is I'm trying to think is there any Western European country with significant Literally, migration yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in or uh, yeah, it's like Western because Eastern they get less, Central Eastern they get less migration. But of all, the, say the EU fifteen countries, um, is there anyone that doesn't have immigration as a large issue or a kind of a, a significant party that arose basically making by making immigration its signature issue? I don't think so, and and that's the reason why I'm suspicious of the idea that kind of focusing just on w- one thing like housing or something w- w- would um, be any kind of solution. Just because, you know, Edmund Burke's statue is outside Trinity College. And when, as he says, when you make a very big change to society, there are all kinds of unanticipated issues that arise. So, the, this, uh, you know, a change of moving from an almost monocultural society 25 years ago to being a multiracial, multicultural society, a society of emigration, switching to society of immigration, that's just going to produce so many unanticipated consequences that it is going to have a systemic effect on our politics. And as any big change won't suit some people, and we have a political system where with multi-seat constituencies, you only need like 10, 15% of a good shot at a seat uh, in a lot of constituencies, it's go- it'll probably... Bring it, make itself felt in the political system eventually. I just, I think the idea that if we, if we don't talk about it, it'll go away, and everybody will 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 be convinced it's great. Just isn't going to happen because we're not exceptional. That hasn't happened in any other country in Western Europe, which has significant inward migration. So we're going to the system where the cartel won't work. I want to ask you one other thing, Ronan, because you, you mentioned it when we, were, when we were discussing this yesterday, and it relates to Una's point about the, the composition of this podcast today as well, which is that um, migration is relatively recent in Ireland compared to some other European countries. But if you look at what you might call the commanding heights of the Irish economy and indeed the information economy as represented by newspapers and broadcasters and everything else, there's very little sign of the Irish elites lowering the ladder to let anybody else in. Absolutely. I, I actually, I think, um, uh, I was saying this to you yesterday, that it's really striking how, for, I mean, two things. One, immigration started in Ireland a couple of decades after other countries in Europe. And so we're kind of behind the curve the, in terms of often de- debates or issues that arise when um, people who are born and raised here still find themselves considered not, kind of quotes, fully Irish or discriminated against and understandably resent that that becomes an issue. Or later on, and you really notice well with the Irish elite, look at, uh, look at RTE, um, an area I'm a bit about, look at the law, the judiciary, senior counsel, the, uh, the um, degree to which immigrants have been permitted to or have managed to break into those elite circles is so 
limited in Ireland. Much worse now in the UK, they've had a few more decades. But if you look at the BBC presenters compared to RTE presenters, the uh, you would think the R- RTE presenters looks like it's 1980 and there's been no immigration into Ireland. So I do actually wonder sometimes if the Irish elite realises that it is going to have to share its toys in the future with people from uh, new from new groups and new because uh, they haven't shared it so far. And um, I think that's going, that's really quite striking in Ireland. The elite is so heavily monocultural still that that should be an issue for discussion and should become a, a point. I mean, this is, as I talk about, working out how we do this, how we manage this new kind of society. That's a big question that we haven't answered and we haven't had any kind of satisfactory uh, answer to. RTE should not look like it's 1980, but it does. The same could be said of the Irish Times. Oh, no, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Yeah, I just think things like managing a new kind of society and framing framing it in that kind of way, I, I just wonder about that kind of rhetoric. I, I really think that what seems to be kind of emerging from some of the conversation here is a desire for a similar quote-unquote conversation uh, that has occurred in other countries around immigration that has been a very destructive kind of uh, discussion. Like, can we not actually look at something, um, look at our society in, in a different way? Because the reality is, while there, we cannot be exceptionalist at all as Irish people, the reality is post-crash Irish society has actually reacted differently uh, in many different ways. Now, we were... Uh, you know, catching up, certainly in like women's reproductive rights, for example. So do we not have an opportunity now um, as a country in Europe that wasn't, you know, a coloniser, things like that, that doesn't actually need to use broken frameworks that have kind of fallen apart elsewhere, that doesn't need to use kind of exclusionary, does this work for me? Am I happy about about this or as a white person or whatever? You know, inste- instead of actually using those broken frameworks, why don't we actually look at ourselves and but go... But does that not involve a conversation? It involves a conversation that is not... Uh, that doesn't follow the patterns of wh- where it's happened elsewhere, where it's actually been either you're against immigration or you're pro-immigration. Either we've too many people or or everybody should shut up. Like, these are really, like, cliché, kind of broken... Uh, but I don't uh, think anybody here was suggesting that kind of conversation. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying... Integration I'm not, being the way in which you can actually... I think integration is the way in which the conversation can actually resolve uh, to some extent. Like, I mean, you can you can somewhat depoliticize the issue when you bring in integration discussions into the debate a little bit more about how you actually integrate people more effectively. But what do you that, mean? Do you a, think that people in Ireland who come here are not integrated effectively into society? Do you and do you mean in terms of the t- upper tiers, like um, Ronan's talking about elites or whatever, or do you mean just in 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 general, like what do you mean by that? I'm just interested in yeah. that, Kevin. Yeah, I. So I mean, when, when the debate is about immigration, it's basically a dead end. It's it yeah. it doesn't depoliticize, yeah. and the and radical right con- parties continue to grow. But I guess what my PhD at least was about. Well, now it's a bit dated at this stage, but was it was showing that when integration discussions actually become centre stage, you can actually depoliticize the issue more generally when that actually happens. And perhaps it's the sort of issues where you're talking about, about you know, changing the faces, let's say, who present the news or whenever, or 
or, or a variety of different ways. I know in some countries they talk about uh, English language supports for people where, where that's a particularly important issue where, where like in the UK, I guess that, that was that was one particular point. But there's lots of different ways in which you can integrate people in, into your culture. Yeah, I, I should say an email landed in my desk uh, yesterday. The, the national integration strategy, the old one, is mm-hmm. coming to an end and the new one is in the process of being formed. I had a quick look at the old one. It was kind of banal. Uh, I would have yeah, expected something I mean, I more. I guess. I guess overall, like I'm just worried that we fall into traps. You know, I'm worried that we fall into traps that are being set. I'm worried that we trace the contours of a conversation uh, uh, that is taking the cues from um, essentially xenophobic and racist factions in Irish society who are saying enough is enough. We need to. Ta- we need to talk about this. This needs to end. This is too much. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera all rooted in xenophobia and racism and fascistic points of view. So I really worry about us falling into traps. I think that, you know, again, having this conversation as like a bunch of white people is flawed. Um, And I also think that there's a level of bigotry in Ireland that is experienced that a lot of people don't really see. Um, Be white people. Like, I'm... Here's an example of that, okay? Yesterday, I was cycling through the Phoenix Park uh, after lunchtime. A kid, mm, teenager, white, male, uh, came up behind my bike beeping on his uh, uh, e-scooter or whatever. And I moved out of the way. Across the, um, the grass embankment, there was a young black woman out for a walk. This white kid ignored me, crossed over the embankment and hit her on the head. For nothing, just totally unprovoked. And I went, obviously went over because she was shouting and she was rattled. And I was like, what happened? We were talking about, you know, oh, there's a lot of assholes out there, whatever. So it's very clear to me that that was like a a, a racist uh, attack. You know, it doesn't matter how minor it was, but, but that's what we're talking about here. So when we talk about immigration and when we talk about multiculturalism, when we talk about integration, when we talk about all of those things, we need to actually move down through the thinking on that and discuss what is it that actually allows that kind of context to happen? What is it? What are the information channels? What are the disinformation channels? What is the sense of resentment and anger? What is being leveraged? And I agree with you, Kevin, that it's not like economic grievances automatically cause this, but I do think they're being leveraged, this sense of disaffection and anger, you know, as opposed to it being a kind of a natural reaction or something. These are the things that we need to talk about. When we say we need to talk about immigration, we will fall into the same patterns that have a framework that goes around uh, numbers and where people are from. We are not exceptional in so many ways. We are, however, different in Europe in many other ways with regards to our own history and our own patterns of mass emigration and our own, um, you know, sectarian struggles on on this island and the bigotry that that gives rise to and uh, our own anti-Englishness, which is growing and our own Republican politics and nationalist politics, which are growing. So I think that we we are not exceptional 
And we also obviously have a different history as every country in Europe does. And we also have a post-colonialist history, although that could be argued uh, with regards to the North and so on. So that's the kind of conversation that we need to be having because what we've learned in Irish society in recent years is that so-called divisive issues and third rails and all of those kind of things, when they are actually met with a human empathic response that is respectful and that is inclusive and that allows people to understand other people's experiences, positive social change is possible. This is not inevitable that this goes wrong, but we need to actually look at ourselves in order for it to go right. So you've constructed a very large edifice there, very large parts of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with, but we need to do another five podcasts with a whole series of different guests to do that. So we might even do that and uh, get everybody back in again at some point, but the uh, clock is ticking on us. Now, unfortunately, um, I thank you very much indeed. That was a very valuable set of contributions. Thanks to thanks to Ronan and to Kevin and to Una for coming in today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed, later in the week, but until then, Thank you very much for listening.